Well, I mean, welcome to the program, Father Wade Manises. Father Wade is a father of mercy. And if I'm going to talk about the four last things, I want a father of mercy to talk to about that. <laughs> because when it comes to the four last things, I want to have uh, my leader be mercy, not judgment, but I want I want mercy in the lead. Father Wade, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be with you again after discussing my first two books, Catholic Essentials and Overcoming the Evil Within. Yeah, and since then, you actually came to the Coeur d'Alene area and led a, a wonderful uh, men's retreat for a whole bunch of men. It all filled up. That was really awesome. It did. It was myself and, and Dr. Ray Garendi, and uh, we tag team and gave a series of talks over the course of the weekend, Friday through Sunday, and we had 175 guys, uh, singles, marrieds, uh, widowers, uh, some multi-generational family members of men, and it was just beautiful to see and had a beautiful uh, retreat center there, uh, Luther Haven, there outside of Spokane. So just a fantastic weekend. Well, you got to see some of the beauties of Coeur d'Alene and then just going around the lake to get to Luther Haven. It's quite a yeah, setting. That's right. And I'll be there again in January at the Immaculate Heart of Mary Retreat Center, uh, which is owned and operated by the diocese there, uh, to give another weekend retreat that's open to men and women. It's titled Work Out Your Salvation, The Theology of Faithfulness to Daily Duty. And the talks uh, revolve around the, the beautiful doctrine that we become holy right where we are, Tom. Again, whether single married or a consecrated priest, brother or sister, a doctor, farmer, lawyer, it doesn't matter. Uh, we become holy right where we are. And that's Amen. a great thing. I think that's beautiful. I think that that's a, it's definitely one of those things that people need to know is like, how do I actually grow in holiness? How do I work out my salvation where right. it can feel like it floats in the air so far beyond what, what it is where um, uh, we think about, but learning to be able to grow in holiness by fulfilling the duties of our own state in life, our own situation in life. I really appreciate that, that you'll be coming back out here again. So the folks that missed you and the women who are unable to be at the men's retreat, now's their chance. So that we'll have yeah. a chance to talk more about that coming up. Father Wade Manises is my uh, guest today on the program. So Father, Great. here we are, we're, we're in November. I don't know about where you're at, but where we're at, things are cold and getting colder. They're dark and getting darker. And right. there's a way in which it reflects the church's own liturgical calendar, not only now as we're approaching the end of the liturgical year, but also as we approach Advent. And it's one of those traditional times where we take up certain themes in the liturgy, and it was such a fitting idea to talk about your book in this context. So I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, you bet. You know, uh, the four last things, a catechetical guide to death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Uh, it's a very important doctrine, and it's a time-honored doctrine of the church. Um, it's a short book. It's only 110 pages. It's only five chapters. Uh, death, judgment, heaven, hell, and the necessity of the spiritual life. Uh, it covers in a very catechetical way, again, a catechetical guide to death, judgment, heaven, and hell. It covers in a very catechetical approach, if you will, uh, the church's eschatology, uh, which means the study of the last things. You know, Tom, we talk about the church's um, uh, sacramentology, the study of the sacraments, the church's Mariology, the study of the Blessed Virgin, uh, the church's Christology, uh, the study of Christ. Well, when, when we hear the word eschatology, the Catholic church's eschatology, it's simply meaning a, a study of the last things 
from the Greek word eschaton or eschatine, which means the last. And the church has always taught in her tradition, based on sacred scripture and her magisterial teachings, uh, that there are four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, three of which will apply to each one of us personally, right? That is death, judgment, heaven, or hell, because it's possible, it's impossible, excuse me, it's impossible for the body-soul composite at the time of the general judgment to go to both places, heaven and hell. So there's four last things, but three of which will apply to each one of us. And sadly, it's a forgotten doctrine. Uh, and why is that? Well, uh, not to blame Vatican II, I want to make that very clear. Vatican II isn't the cause of the forgetting of the church's eschatology, but it is the occasion of the forgetting of the church's eschatology. And I, I quote it as such in the book on page five, I state this. I say, sadly, the doctrine of the four last things has seemingly been forgotten since the close of the Second Vatican Council, which ran from 1962 to 1965. This surely is not the council's fault, however. Vatican II was a solid, faithful, orthodox council that was truly ushered in by the Holy Spirit, the church's, the universal church's 21st ecumenical council. Rather, the church's eschatology was de-emphasized at the insistence of those following the council who deemed the harder truths of death and judgment to be unappealing to modern men and women in that era of the mid-60s. And so the post-Vatican II church seemed to highlight the reality of heaven and salvation at the expense of the church's time-honored teachings on death, judgment, purgatory, and hell. But the fact is that heaven and hell, salvation and damnation, eternal life and eternal punishment are all complementary doctrines, huh? Uh, they need each other to be complete. Focusing on only the positive or only on the negative yields an unbalanced view of our world and the next world, which we're gearing these current lives toward. So, you know, heaven and salvation, the reality of judgment and hell, they're all complementary doctrines, and they need to be focused on in a cohesive way, and all of them involve God's greatest attribute, his mercy. You know, uh, Father Wade, you're, you're talking about this, and, it, and it's it's true. I, when I think about growing up when I did in the church, very rarely did I hear at church the themes of heaven and hell. But I grew up in a very conservative Catholic home. And let me tell you, my mom, she was really good about bringing up the fact that, uh, I, I don't want to use the phrase, there will be hell to pay, but there's something at stake in your life and how you behave will have consequences. You will be held accountable. That was a right. theme that my mom and dad used when they uh, when they raised us. And there was a way in which that, that fostered a kind of fear of God. And um, it, let me say it this way, for all the impacts that it had, it protected us from going down a trail of, like yeah. when I thought about uh, committing a sin, I remembered my mom's voice and realizing that there was something at stake in my life, uh, something the greatest thing at stake in my life was the ultimate destiny. Was it going to be heaven or hell? So yeah. I think that there was a real loss. I think there is a real loss. And I think that your book, The Four Last Things, and frankly, the way that you lay out these doc uh, these doctrines in the book does provide uh, an accessible and yet reliable corrective that a lot of folks that have been brought up in the post-Vatican II timeframe have missed out on um, really 
something that everyone ought to pay attention to, which is our ultimate destiny. Yeah, so first right. of all, I really appreciate you writing this book. You're, you're most welcome. Uh, you know, number 1847 of the Catechism encapsulates everything you just said. It's a quote from St. Augustine, and he says this, the God who will to create us without us does not will to save us without us. In other words, we're not Calvinists. We don't believe God does it all. We believe God's the primary mover in the life of grace, okay? But we also believe that God wants us to work with him in working out our own salvation. As Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I'm going to come back to that phrase because it's supposed to be a filial fear that we work out our salvation, not a servile fear. A servile fear is a fear of punishment that's coming uh, because you've offended uh, the superior or the master and the underling, you know, the servant is afraid of a punishment. That's servile fear. Well, that's not the kind of fear we're supposed to have of God, according to the church fathers who comment when they give their scriptural exegesis on Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation. They say it's supposed to be a filial fear from the Latin filius, which means son or colloquially daughter or child. It's the fear of a child who doesn't want to disappoint the parent not because he believes a punishment will come from the parent if he does disappoint the parent. No, not at all. Rather, it's the fear of not wanting to disappoint. Why? Precisely because he knows the parent loves him. Mm -hmm. It's the fear of not wanting to disappoint. So when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Philippians 2.12, and to dovetail, again, that's what the the parish, uh, uh, excuse me, that's what the retreat is in Spokane, the weekend of January 20th through the 22nd. That's what its title is based on Philippians 2.12. Work out your salvation, the theology of faithfulness to daily duty. We become holy where we are, whether single, married, or a consecrated religious, priest, brother, sister, doctor, farmer, lawyer, but it's with a filial fear of God, not a servile fear of God. Okay, so that's very important. But St. Augustine says, the God who willed to create us without us does not will to save us without us. In other words, he wants to, to be an, an active cooperator, a co-worker in the Latin, co-operate, co-operator with him in bringing our life to salvation in heaven with him for all eternity, following this earthly life that's an average of 78 years. Now, St. Catherine of Siena says something very similar. She says, the God who willed to create you uh, without your cooperation does not will to save you without your cooperation. So this is very, very, very much an important point of the doctrine. Going back to servile fear versus filial fear. Uh, again, it, it's the fear of, filial fear is the fear of a child who doesn't want to disappoint. It's not the fear of a, of a, of a servant who believes a punishment is coming. Listen to Romans 8, Tom. It says this, Romans 8, 15 through 16. You did not receive a spirit of slavery, leading you back into a fear, but rather a spirit of adoption as a son or daughter through which we cry out, Abba, Father, okay? So not slavery, but sonship or daughtership. Not servile fear, but filial fear. How about this? John 8, 35, a slave does not remain in a household forever, but a son or daughter always remains, right? First John 4, our love is to be brought to perfection in this, that we should have confidence on the day of judgment. Love has no room for fear. Rather, perfect love casts out all fear. In other words, 
Filial fear casts out servile fear. The love of the family, the love of the son or daughter towards the father, the love of the father towards the son or daughter, that familial fear, that perfect love uh, casts out all fear that might be servile. How about Francis de Sales, who I love because he's the patron saint of, of communication studies and communications and journalists, both print and broadcast. He says this, we must fear God out of love, not love him out of fear. That's pretty powerful. We must fear God out of love, not love him out of fear. And St. Peter Chrysologus, early church bishop, says God's desire is to be loved rather than feared. So again, we see the filial fear, the, the, son, the fear of a son or daughter because of love that they have for the father. And they know that that love is returned back from the father to them. It trumps the servile fear, the fear of, of punishment. So basically, God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons and daughters. And this is tied to his merciful doctrine. You know, many of the church fathers say that mercy is God's greatest attribute, right? Well, this greatest attribute of God as a loving father with his son in the Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian Godhead that has a mercy towards each one of us, that's coupled with this filial fear in the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And again, through the Son and the Holy Spirit, but it's, it ultimately is an attribute from the Father, is this mercy. Uh, and so we want to realize that this mercy is who God is, right? It's love's second name, I like to say. God is more interested in our future than in our past. He's more interested in the kind of person we can yet become than in the kind of person we used to be, right? Uh, while indeed taking our sins seriously, no doubt, whether mortal or venial, here's the thing. God never, ever, ever takes those sins as the last word. Why? Because he knows he's made us in his image and likeness. He knows he calls us constantly to a life of his sanctifying grace. And he knows he is our God who is bigger than any sin we might ever commit, even the most hideous or wicked mortal sin. You know, there's nothing I love more as a father of mercy, you know, and I'm pointing to our badge there, you know, our golden blue badge, Tom, depicts the return of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 20, especially when it says he was moved with mercy and he runs out to greet the prodigal son. He runs out to greet the prodigal son and he greets him with a kiss. There's nothing I love more as a father of mercy to hear these or similar words at the beginning of a confession. Uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. My last confession was 47 years ago. Wow. 47 years ago. Praise God, my prodigal son, you've come back. How beautiful is that? Now, in one sense, don't get me wrong, it's kind of bittersweet. In, in one sense, I'm thrilled, and primarily I'm thrilled because the prodigal son has come back or the prodigal daughter has come back after 47 years, right? But it's still bittersweet a little bit because I want to say, what, what monkey has been on your back for 47 years that you've, you've let that monkey win over you uh, to keep you from the sacraments of Eucharist worthily received and from the sacrament of holy confession? Because those are the only two sacraments out of the seven that can be received over and over and over again with much frequency. Why? Because these are the two sacraments of the seven that sustain us in our daily walk, whether single or married or a consecrated priest, brother or sister. So, you know, what monkey has latched onto your back for those 47 years that you've let keep you from worthy reception of the Eucharist and confession? All that said... I'm thrilled that you're back, and I'm I'm the father embracing the prodigal son or daughter, bringing them back to an active, actual participation 
in the life of Holy Mother Church, the Bride of Christ, which he founded. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But we are called to be cooperators. So let me use myself in, as an example. God is always, always, always the primary mover, capital P, capital M in the life of grace, sanctifying grace, actual grace, etc. no doubt. But he does will that Father Wade be an active cooperator with him as the primary mover in bringing Father Wade himself back to a life of grace. Again, without God, I can't. But without me, God won't. So this reality of filial fear trumping servile fear, this reality of mercy is God's greatest attribute, a God who's constantly calling us back to a life of grace with him, Tom, are part and parcel when studying the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, the church's eschatology. And I make that clear uh, at the beginning of the book itself. So I, I'm really hoping, you know, uh, Advent is only a little over four weeks long. This is a quick read, only 110 pages, uh, five chapters, death, judgment, heaven, hell, and the necessity of the spiritual life. What a great read to take on for this Advent of 2022, uh, which remember the first Sunday of Advent begins the, the new liturgical year, right? Uh, and that's important to remember. Let's start our life anew. Really, for Catholic Christians, our New Year's Day is really the first Sunday of Advent in just two weeks. That's our liturgical New Year's Day. So we want to make resolutions at the beginning of the new year, right? How about making your resolutions at the begin of, beginning of the new liturgical year this year? The first Sunday of Advent, which is when? Um, it's the, the 27th of November is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, next Sunday is the 34th final Sunday of Ordinary Time, also known as the Great Solemnity of Christ the King, Sovereign Priest. Um, so, But the Sunday after that is the first Sunday of Advent. So let's make our New Year's re resolutions by reading this book recalling the beauty of the doctrine of God's mercy, the beauty of the doctrine of filial fear, trumping servile fear, and uh, wanting to get on the road to salvation. That's Father Wade Manises joining me today on the program. Father Wade, what you just shared was it's very profound and uh, very meaningful to me. I shared with you a little bit ago about growing up in a home where it really was servile fear. It really was that sense of saying, fear the punishment of God. And so having the merciful love of God who is so moved with mercy that he draws me home with bands of love and he wants me to live from love and have confidence that he's a merciful God and a merciful father is so powerful. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Father Wade, you are a father of mercy. And as you go around the country doing retreats, like um, well, the one that's coming up in January at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center, the weekend retreat, Work Out Your Salvation, or the men's retreat that you just did recently, are you, uh, you're telling these beautiful stories about people coming back to reconciliation. They're coming back to being reconciled with God, coming to make a good confession. I'm wondering how much of that is because they're being drawn by mercy. They're being drawn by like maybe a fresh realization that they don't have to stay hidden when they've fallen short. 
but they can come out and what will will await them is a, is a reunion with their loving father who's waiting to welcome them home. That's right. That's absolutely correct. You know, one thing that I like to tell my listeners, and I'll say it the weekend at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center retreat is held, um, is that this is what we hold in common with the saints of the Catholic Church, the saints and blesseds. They had their issues, their dependencies, their addictions, their faux pas that would cause them to fall, but they would get back up. So much so that they strive for a holy life to co- overcome those issues, dependencies, addictions, those faux pas. We share that with the lives of the saints. Augustine with his lust, Padre Pio with his anger, um, St. Camillus de Lellis with his gambling addiction, uh, Blessed Bartolo Longo with his involvement in Satanism and the occult, uh, Venerable Matt Talbot with his drinking, uh, St. Mary of Egypt with her prostitution. Um, how about St. Marguerite de Yulville, who didn't so much have a issue, dependency, or addiction herself, but she had things thrust upon her from outside sources, like an unfaithful, adulterous husband who cheated on her behind her back. Um, her father's early death when she was only two, she never knew her father. Uh, her family's poverty as a result in growing up, a very poverty-stricken family she grew up in. Uh, how about a nasty mother-in-law who hated her and by one biographical count, tried to kill her. Her own mother-in-law tried to kill her. You know, so the, the saints lived in the modern world of their time, just as we in the live in the modern world of our time. If they did it and they returned to the sacraments and they returned to an active actual participation in the life of Holy Mother Church, uh, then we could do the same thing. Because God's arms are ever welcoming the, us back to his bosom, the bosom of the Heavenly Father. And so the, those are the two things I like to remind my listeners whenever I preach or speak about the lives of the saints. Number one, they had their issues, dependencies, addictions, and faux pas, just like we do, number one. And number two, they lived in the modern world of their time, just as we live in the modern world of our time. If they did it, if they arrived at holiness, so much so, Tom, that by the time they died, they had people clamoring at the walls of the Vatican, at least at their diocesan level, to have their causes introduced for, for sainthood. If they did it, then we can do it. And the saints show us the way. Amen. That's beautiful, Father Wade. And one of the things that they did is they died, right? They and died. so today we're here to talk no. about the four last things. And so yeah. they died, they faced judgment. And by the, again, the grace of God, we celebrate them now as sharing in the life of God in heaven. I want to dig into your book, The Four Last Things. Again, it's five short chapters on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And you snuck in purgatory and judgment. And then right. on the importance of the spiritual life, I got to tell you, one of the things, uh, well, one of the things I like about your book, Father Wade, is very accessible. It is a catechetical guide. You reference yeah. the catechism through and through every chapter. And in addition to that, you constantly are weaving in scripture and the witness of the saints. So it's right. a, it's a very, it is very much a catechetical guide. It's accessible. And I think it, it fills a, a great lack that is absolutely necessary in our own lives of faith, which is reflecting on these four last things. So let's dive in. I want to dive into death. Yeah, there you go. There's a happy topic, right? But wait a minute. There you go. <laughs> How do we reflect on death? So uh, where do you want to start? Well, I want to begin with death by saying very simply that, you know, uh, animals die, plants die, insects die, and humans die, but only humans 
are intellectually and rationally aware of the fact that they die. And why is that? Because only the human person, Tom, only the human person is made in the image and likeness of God. These other things are part of God's creation, and they tell us something about God. The multiplicity of animals, the multiplicity of insects, fresh-cut flowers and, and vegetables and trees and whatnot, all these things tell us something about the beauty of God, but they're not made in his image and likeness, although they are part of his creation. And we are made in God's image and likeness, and he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, to save us, to redeem us, to lead us to an eternity with the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever, called the beatific vision, eternal beatitude. And that's what cannot be forgotten of. St. Augustine says, let us not resist Christ's first coming precisely so that we do not regret his second coming. He will come whether we wish it or not. So do not think that because he is not coming just now while you are still living, that he will not come at all. No, Christ will come. You know not when. And provided he finds you prepared, your ignorance of the time of his coming will not be held against you. And then he goes on to say, St. Augustine, in fact, there is a time before his first coming, excuse me, a time in between his first coming and his second coming, where he will come to you personally, if you are not of the generation living at the time of his second coming. And that is when you die individually, you have your particular judgment, which will be ratified at the general judgment. And the church has taught constantly, Tom, based on sacred scripture, her teaching tradition, and the magisterial authority that she bears in the apostolic college from the original 12, uh, rooted in the keys of Peter, the, the authority of Peter uh, at the as the head of the apostolic college. The church has constantly taught through sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium that the particular judgment will take place at the moment of one's death. And I bring that out in, in the book very, very clearly, and that it will be ratified, the uh, general, the particular judgment at the general judgment. Now, for those who are saved, having their particular judgment ratified at the time of the general judgment will be no source of embarrassment for them at all. In fact, it'll be a source of great joy for them. Why? Because their life will show, because they're saved, their life will show precisely how they welcomed God's mercy into their life while they were still living on earth. Maybe not all the time, maybe not at first, but by the time they died, they welcomed God's mercy and they had their sins forgiven. Uh, for those who are reprobated, damned, a nice way of saying damned, the church has always taught through scripture, tradition, the magisterium, that having that reprobated or damned particular judgment ratified at the general judgment will be a great source of, of embarrassment and horror for them. Why? Not because they're having their sins manifested in everybody, that'll be secondary. The primary reason why having their reprobated or damned particular judgment ratified that the general judgment will be such a, a source of horror or embarrassment for them will be because their life will show forth precisely how they rejected God's mercy. Huh? Mm -hmm. Having their sins shown to all and their life shown to all for what it is and, and what it is and, and, and why their judgment is reprobated will, will be secondary. The main reason will be because they'll be horrified as to how and that they just re reality-wise rejected God's mercy. Listen to this. Uh, regarding the last judgment ratifying one's particular judgment, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1039, says, in the presence of Christ, who is truth itself, the truth of each person's relationship with God will be laid bare at the last judgment. 
The last judgment will reveal, even to its furthest consequences, the good that each person has done or failed to do during his or her earthly life. St. Augustine says, all that the wicked do is recorded. When our God comes again, he does not keep silence. That's quoting Psalm 50, verse 3. How about our Lord's own words, Tom, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 3? Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed even from the housetops. Okay, and Matthew 12, our Lord's words again, verses 36 and 37, I tell you solemnly, on the day of judgment, men will render an account for every careless word they utter. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will also be condemned. Mm -hmm. So the church has always taught, again, based on scripture, tradition, the magisterium, death is real, okay? Only human persons are rationally and intellectually aware of that fact. Uh, and it's because we are the only creature made in God's image and likeness, and the only creature that God has willed for its own sake, okay? The particular judgment will take place. The last judgment will take place. And at the last judgment, the particular judgment will be ratified. So that covers death and judgment in a nutshell for this one hour. But I go into more detail in the book, in the first two chapters, death and judgment, and why the reality of God's mercy, the God who calls us to live a life of perfection in his grace, the God who loves, the God who's constantly calling us, is so important when looking at the church's eschatology, especially these first two of the four realities of her eschatology, the death and the judgment, uh, let alone the heaven and hell. Right. You know, Father Wade, when you, uh, in those first two chapters, I want to highlight a couple of other themes, if that's okay. In the death sure. chapter, one of the things that I um, that you do um, very, in, in, a, in a way that's um, nuanced and um, very helpful is that you bring out the fact that death wasn't part of God's plan, that Christ has overcome death. And so that sting that we feel within us that makes us want to avoid thinking about death, talking right. about death, and, and maybe in some kind of worldly perspective, hope for a, a quick and painless death in my sleep, right? That this is not the church's perspective, that Christ in his victory has overcome death and overcome our death so that we can even look at death as this door that we desire to go through to be with our beloved, to reach our fulfillment. You bring out some beautiful quotes from saints, as well as the catechism, highlighting that theme. So I'd love for you to just talk about that a little bit, because for a lot of listeners, they're not really thinking about their own death. They like to avoid thinking about it. Right, right. You know, this is why, the, for example, the morning offering is such a staple Catholic practice, uh, making a morning offering upon your arising each day. How do you know that that's not going to be the day you're going to die, right? Uh, I pray daily in my morning offering, Tom, that whether I die suddenly, like through a car accident, or whether I die through a slow demise, like through cancer, I pray for the grace of a holy and happy death, number one. And number two, I pray that in my morning offering, I pray that the day I do die, whether it's suddenly or not, I pray that the day I do die, I will have made a morning offering, <laughs> okay? Those are the two things I pray for in my morning offering each day. Uh, the church teaches so beautifully, Tom, and I'll quote Catechism of the Catholic Church number 1010, because that's where we read this. The literal, actual, physical act of dying, if it's done in a state of grace, that is with no mortal sin on one's soul, 
is the very literal act, not metaphoric act, but the very little act, literal act, the act of literally dying, is the very act per se that fully incorporates us into Christ's paschal mystery, that four event event that he carried out for us to save us and redeem, redeem us, his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. Our physical, literal act of dying, if it's done in a state of grace with no mortal sin, is the literal act, Tom, that fully incorporates us into Christ's body. Listen to this, number 1010. Because of Christ, Christian death now has a positive meaning. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, St. Paul tells us. The saying is sure then, if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. Quoting 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Then the catechism continues in number 1010. What is essentially new about Christian death then is this. Through baptism, having been received, the sacrament of baptism, the Christian has already died with Christ sacramentally, which the three-time submersion or the three-time pouring uh, signifies, right, through sign, in order to rise up from the waters and live a new life in Christ. And thus, if we die in Christ's grace, that that sacrament of baptism gave us the ability to receive, if we die in Christ's grace with no mortal sin on our soul, which severs that grace, physical death literally completes this dying with Christ and so literally completes our incorporation into him in his redeeming act of the Paschal mystery. That's pretty powerful. The literal act of dying physically dying, whether it's through a, a car accident, whether it's through a slow demise, like through cancer, if it's done in a state of grace, is the very act per se that brings us to the full incorporation of Christ in his salvific paschal mystery. Can you imagine a mom and dad losing their 21-year-old daughter in a car accident suddenly and how that devastates them, but yet they have the comfort of knowing that their 21-year-old daughter loved the church received Holy Communion every Sunday, went to confession monthly like clockwork in honor of the first Friday devotion to the Sacred Heart that she had and the first Saturday devotion to the Immaculate Heart that she had, the nine First Fridays and the five First Saturdays. What comfort that brings that mother and father, despite the devastation of losing their daughter immediately in a car accident, the comfort they have, these parents, Tom, knowing that their daughter died most likely in a state of grace. And not only that, but the priest was able to get to the coroner's site while the body was still warm within the first hour after the accident and was able to anoint her, which in that case doubles as sacramental confession if there was any mortal sin, but chances are there wasn't. What a comfort this mother and father have, right? Because whenever the person is non-auricular, they're non-audible, either because of death or because of of apparatus on them in the ICU unit, okay, they can't receive, uh, they can't make a good confession when they receive the last rites. The sacrament of the anointing of the sick in that case doubles as confession. So the, the literal act of the car accident that caused the literal act of her dying, there's good there. It's called living an act of sacramental life. And this young woman had it. And so that brings great, great comfort to the mother and father. How awesome is that? Yeah, you know, it's beautiful. And, it, and it's it's really a Catholic vision of life, right? That says, that's absolutely right. this is not our home. Our home is heaven. And there's only right. one way to get to heaven, and that's going through death. So death yeah, is not amen. a threat. Death is not a threat. Death is the door that allows us to get there. 
listen to heaven here because it dovetails. Hold on, I want to go. I, I, I got to get through purgatory first. So let's. <laughs> okay, we'll because you purgatory. bring up something. Okay, you bring up heaven, and then I'm going to go back to purgatory because you bring up a really interesting point in your uh, in your chapter on judgment about purgatory. I want to bring it out, and then we will get to heaven and hell and the importance of the spiritual life. I know we got a lot to cover here, uh, but it's, a, it's such a good book. The four last things we're talking about today by Father Wade Manises. And I want to encourage you to go to the website, which is on EWTN, EWTN's website. They have the book available, uh, which is right here, the four last things, EWTNreligiouscatalog.com or EWTNRC.com. And you'll see, you can just search for the four last things and Father Wade's book will come up. Father Wade Manises is my uh, guest today on the program. Father Wade, I really appreciate you giving us time to talk about these four last things. And you heard Father Wade, he was recommending, this is a great book for Advent. It's coming up. Five short chapters. It's accessible, yet it's also very valuable in that it lays out the teaching of the church, relying upon the catechism, so it's up to date, and yet also draws upon the scriptures in our tradition, examples from the saints. So let's let's dig into purgatory a little bit. You talk about judgment, and one of the things you bring up was, "Hey, I don't want to go to purgatory." You you first of all lay out a whole bunch of beautiful scriptural references to ground purgatory, which was I found very helpful in one simple uh, simple section of the book. But yeah. you also talk about the reality that in judgment, yes, God's mercy may have granted us the gift of salvation. But there's still some work to do here. There's still some purification to undergo, some temporal punishment involved. Talk a little bit about purgatory, because again, I think that's that's a doctrine that was shifted a bit off of the central focus. And so a lot of folks don't right. really think about purgatory, or they'll say, like you say in the book, well, you know what, if I don't make it to heaven, at least I got into purgatory. Yeah. Well, you know, the impetus of writing the book back in 2017 were two. No, and the second one has to do with purgatory, the second reason. The first reason why I wrote the book is because it dawned on me that the 40-year-olds and older in the church who practice their faith, who have children who are 40 and younger, who no longer practice the faith, those 40 and younger, Tom, who no longer practice their faith, have no idea, no idea what to do for mom and dad who are 40 and older when mom and dad are dying on their deathbed. They have no idea to call the priest. They have no idea to ensure that the priest imparts the five elements of the last rite, especially including the apostolic pardon. They have no idea. It's a travesty and, and the devil loves it. So my hope is that this book will bring back some fallen ways. So for no other reason, they know what to do for mom and dad who do practice the faith when mom and dad are dying on their deathbed. You I've know, never thought of that. They know to ask for the last rites. They know to make sure that the apostolic pardon was in, was in, was imparted to their dying parent. The second reason why I wrote the book, and it deals with purgatory, is I got tired of meeting practicing Catholics, practicing Catholics, who believe that purgatory was automatic when you died. There was no way to avoid it. Well, Tom, that's a heresy. That's an absolute heresy. That is not what the church teaches. The church teaches that purgatory exists and that you can go there if at the time of your earthly death, you have not yet fully atoned for your temporal punishment for already forgiven mortal and venial sins. You can go there and you have to go there in that case. Meaning, therefore, if at the time of your earthly death, you have already atoned for temporal punishment due to your already forgiven mortal and venial sins, then you can go straight to heaven. And in fact, 
if the truth be known, faith tells me one of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. The theological virtue of faith, of, of faith and hope tells me that that's God's plan A for us, Tom, is to go straight to heaven when we die. His plan B for us, if you want to call it that, is to go to purgatory, because at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven once the temporal punishment is atoned for. That said, who wants to go there? I don't want to go there. So that's the third thing I pray for in my morning offering, is that I will receive the greatest of all graces, that at the time of my earthly death, I can enter heaven immediately, thereby having already atoned for any and all temporal punishment due to my already forgiven mortal and venial sins, having atoned for that temporal punishment while still living on earth. And thank you, O blessed Trinity, for giving me the courage and fortitude to do so, okay, that I can atone for any and all temporal punishment now. Now, why does temporal punishment remain even after one has confessed the, the mortal sin in confession, for example, or has confessed the venial sin in confession, or has the venial sin forgiven through other means, like through the 14 works of mercy or the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, not because of the works themselves, of course, but rather because of the charity they foster, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. My point being is that mortal sin, the ordinary way that mortal sin is forgiven is through the sacrament of penance and reconciliation, confession. Venial sin can be forgiven in confession, but there's other ways venial sins forgiven. For example, the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass. What's the whole purpose of having a penitential rite at the beginning of Mass, like the confidior, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, etc.? So that in 25 minutes from now, when we come up for communion, we won't even have venial sin in our soul. So the confidior, the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, the 14 works of mercy, seven for the body, the corporal works of mercy, seven for the soul, the spiritual works of mercy. These are all other ways that venial sins are forgiven if you do those good works with the intention of having venial sin forgiven. We're told very clearly in the New Testament, there is sin that is deadly and sin that is not deadly. That's the church's springboard for teaching there is mortal sin and venial sin. Mortal sin is grave matter done with fullness of knowledge and done with deliberate consent of your will. If all three of those are present, you have a mortal sin. If any one or two of those is missing, you have a venial sin. So once we have the venial sin and or mortal sin forgiven, the guilt is gone through the absolution of the priest, right? In confession. But temporal punishment still remains. Why, why is that? Well, because sin is messy. That's why. There's four categorical consequences to personal sin whenever it's committed. There's personal consequences, social consequences, ecclesial consequences, the church herself is disrupted, and cosmic consequences. You want proof of the cosmic consequences of sin, that the very bowels of the cosmos are affected by the human person's sin? Just read the book of Genesis and what happened to the beautiful Garden of Eden. It closed in on itself through the sin of our first parents. Now, why is this? Because the human person is at the apex of creation. We're at the very top of creation. If we sin against God, whose image and likeness we're made in, it makes sense, Tom, that somehow, someway, somehow, someway, somehow, someway, the lower forms of creation, the cosmos, the cosmic consequences of sin are going to be affected by that. So there's personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic consequences to sin. So when you confess your sin, the mortal sin, for example, in confession or the venial sin, or you have your venial sin forgiven during the penitential rite at mass, the sin is indeed forgiven. 
but the temporal punishment remains because those sins cause personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic consequences. Mm -hmm. So I want to atone for my temporal punishment now while still living on earth. The second place that you can atone for temporal punishment is purgatory. Now, mortal sin merits eternal punishment, which can only be carried out in one place, hell. But once the mortal sin is confessed, it no longer merits eternal punishment in hell. It now merits temporal punishment, either on earth or in purgatory. This is why suffering embraced as something salvific, unified to the cross of Jesus Christ, can be atoning for the person's temporal punishment. Uh, if your listeners go to fathersofmercy.com and on the, on the uh, search bar at the homepage, simply type salvific suffering or the benefits of suffering, they'll find my six main reasons why we want to offer suffering to God in whatever form it might come, the cancer the person has, the injury they received in the car accident, uh, offering up maybe the, their poverty, their things aren't going well financially, they can even offer up their poverty. Uh, any forms of suffering can be offered up to God as a pleasing sacrifice when it's united to the saving cross of Christ. Why? Because the cross was just that, saving, okay? So God's plan A for us, Thomas, to go straight to heaven when we die. I want to have all my temporal punishment already atoned for at the time of my earthly death. And I pray for the, the, the courage and the fortitude, gifts of the Holy Spirit, by the way, to be able to embrace that suffering now, to be able to enter heaven immediately upon my death. Mm -hmm. But for those of us who die, not yet having fully atoned for the temporal punishment for our already forgiven mortal and venial sins, there's temporal punishment to be had in purgatory. It's a purgation. Mm -hmm. Only absolute purity, absolute cleanness, absolute goodness can enter heaven. So if we die still attached to sin in some form, um, we can't enter heaven. Yeah. yeah. Amen to that. That's uh father Wade Menezes, father Wade. Uh, when I talk to my kids, we, and we focus on look life on earth here is about life in heaven. And so we want to, you know, love and serve our Lord, our God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths and all of that. And we talk about, so the kids say, well, what, how do you want to die? And so the kids, the kids have come up with, I want to go to confession, come out of the confessional and have somebody there with a gun saying, are you a Christian? And then you die a martyr's death right there. <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty the, heroic. That's their design that they want to suffer a, martyrdom, a martyr's death after coming out of the confessional completely cleansed of sin. So, Father, Father right. Wade, in the time that we have left, we want to cover heaven, hell, and the importance of um, the spiritual life and, and um, growth in the spiritual life. So let's focus on heaven because you, you talk about the love of God. Well, that's, uh, that's really connected to our destiny. Oh, I love talking about heaven. You know, by heaven is meant the state of supreme and definitive happiness, the beatific vision, eternal beatitude, the catechism teaches. Those who die in the grace of God and have no need of further purification upon their after their death or upon their death are gathered around Jesus and Mary and the angels and saints, and they thus form the church of heaven, the members of the church triumphant, where they see God face to face, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and they live in a communion of love with the most blessed Trinity, and they intercede for us as members of the church triumphant. 
They intercede for us, members of the church militants still living on earth, and they intercede as well, as we can as well, for the members of the church suffering in purgatory, also known as members of the church penitent. But heaven houses the members of the church triumphant. And heaven is just that, uh, perfect blessedness, perfect happiness, the, the scene of God face to face, the joy of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and all the angels and saints, uh, eternal beatitude. That's what it is. And one of the things that I bring out in the book, Tom, as I'm sure you're aware, are the four gifts of the glorified risen state, the four characteristics of the glorified risen state, uh, impassibility, subtility, agility, and clarity. Uh, impassibility regards the incapability of suffering. There'll be no suffering in heaven, right? Uh, no death, no dying, no suffering. How about subtility? It regards man's spiritual nature uh, at the resurrection of the just. The archetype of the spiritualized body is the risen body of Christ, which emerged from uh, the sealed tomb and penetrated closed doors. Uh, so thus, the second characteristic, a subtility, grants the resurrected bodies of the just, for example, to pass through solid objects. Doesn't that sound like fun, Tom? I can't <laughs> wait for that. You got to have your kids, all your kids read the four uh, characteristics of the risen glorified body. Number three, agility. Now, I love this one because I love basketball, right? Agility is the third one. It's the capability of the body to obey the soul with the greatest ease and speed of movement that depends only on an act of will. It forms a contrast to the heaviness of the earthly body, which is conditioned by the law of gravity. The characteristic of agility was manifested by the risen body of Christ, which was suddenly present in the midst of his apostles and which disappeared just as quickly. For example, on the road to Emmaus, when he vanished from the presence of the two disciples, once he broke bread with them, right, to go in and have supper with them, when he broke the bread, we're told he vanished, right? Uh, so they recognize him, but then he vanished from their sight. So the intrinsic reason for this third characteristic of agility lies in the perfect dominion of the transfigured soul over the body to the extent that it moves the body through space with simply the speed of thought. How about that? Huh? That'd be great for basketball. Uh, how about clarity? The fourth and final one. Clarity regards the glorified body being free from everything deformed and being filled with complete beauty and radiance. Each person's clarity will vary according to the decree of glory of the soul in heaven, and that in turn will depend on the person's merit before God, having been obtained while still living on earth, based primarily on the charity they practiced while still living on earth. So faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, charity, right? Mm -hmm. So charity practice on earth uh, is, is, uh, tells us a lot about the merit we receive before God, only through his grace. And the merit says something about our decree of glory, our de degree of glory in heaven. Okay, so they're all all these things are tied together. Clarity then regards the glorified splendor of the resurrected body and its complete lack of imperfections or deformities uh, and or deformities. Deformities are things we're born with, say a club foot. Imperfections would be things that we get after birth, like maybe a car accident leaves you with a, a scar from your lower left earlobe to your mid shoulder. So whether a deformity that we're born with or an imperfection that we obtain after birth, both categories will be absent in heaven with this fourth gift of clarity. Okay, very, very beautiful. The absolute radiance of the glorified body of the just. Okay, now, extremely important, however, in the church's doctrine, we must note, however, that Christ's wounds, which would be considered imperfections, not, not deformities, right? Because they're obtained after his birth. We must note, however, that Christ's wounds do abide in heaven and that they too are glorified. 
and that they remain a sign of his triumph. Thus Christ's wounds on his resurrected and transfigured body are not considered signs of imperfection. It must be remembered that Jesus' wounds were the very tools, St. Thomas Aquinas teaches, which brought the Apostle Thomas to believe in Christ's own resurrection. According to Thomas Aquinas, our Lord kept in his glorified and risen body the marks of his wounds for four reasons. Number one, to serve as an everlasting testimony of his victory over death. That's why he retained his wounds, the first of four reasons. Number two, to serve as a proof that he is the same Christ who suffered and was crucified on the, cro on the cross. He's the same Christ who was risen from the dead. That's why he retained his wounds for his second reason. Third reason, to serve as a constant and concrete plea on our behalf to the eternal father to save and redeem us. And number four, get this, Tom, the fourth reason why the risen, glorified body of Christ still retains his wounds, as a means of upbraiding the reprobates, the damned, to constantly remind them what they have solemnly rejected, the God-man Jesus Christ from their lives. And so to serve as a means of upbraiding the reprobates, the damned on the last day, showing them what he did for them, thus reminding them of what they have wickedly despised and rejected by rejecting the Son of God. Those are the four reasons why Christ retains his wounds. That's Father Wade Menezes say, talking about his book, The Four Last Things. Father Wade, I love what you're saying there. Again, people don't reflect a lot on What's heaven going to be like? They think of harps and clouds and angel wings. Yeah. And so you do a great service to our Catholic faith and to Catholics who haven't been formed in their faith to explore richness like this in your book. Well, Father Wade, I really appreciate you taking as much time as you did today with me on the program. And uh, I'd love to have you on again before you come in. Uh, you come back out here in January for your retreat, uh, your weekend retreat that's going to be happening. Work out your salvation. That's uh, the 20th of January through the 22nd, Friday through Sunday. And that's happening at the Immaculate Heart Retreat Center. Father Wade Manises, thank you so much for being with me today on the program. You're welcome, Tom. It was great to be with all of you. And I'd like to give a blessing to all of your listeners, if I may. And I have a, a St. Joseph Terror of Demons ink pen here that I always hold up every Tuesday on Open Line Tuesday. By the way, I want to invite your listeners to go to Open Line Tuesday, Tuesdays at two o'clock Central Time on EWT and Global Catholic Radio. I believe you all get it there in your area. Uh, to tune in every Tuesday, that would be what, 12 noon your time, every yes. Tuesday at 12 there on the West Coast, to, and be a caller into Open Line Tuesday, and let us know if you heard us on Tom's show, uh, that would be great, great to hear as well. Uh, but I always hold up my St. Joseph Terror of Demons ink pen, it's my favorite title of St. Joseph's when I get the blessing. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of your listeners tom and remain with each and every one of you this day and always saint joseph terror of demons pray Christ. for us amen thank you father wade you're welcome tom thank you now god bless you <laughs>